But we're going to continue this morning in our sermon time. And as Kyle said at the start of the service, we're uh, in the season of Lent together as a church. And for some of you, that may be a, a foreign word or a different word, one that maybe you're not all that familiar with. And maybe the idea of there being a church calendar and this thing that the church has observed for thousands of years, that may be foreign to you. That's totally okay. It was foreign to me to some degree, other than my Catholic family. Half of my family, my mom's side, they're all Catholic. And so that was like, that was what the Catholics did. And then like we Protestants, we just kind of, you know, we observed Christmas and Easter. And other than that, we did what we wanted to. And so it, it is something that we have found here quite helpful to kind of tie us to this history of what it is these faithful believers have been doing for thousands and thousands of years as we follow Jesus. And so we do that every year. We observe the season of Lent, and then we will observe the season of Easter, not just one Sunday, not just Resurrection Sunday. We're going to sit in it. And so we invite you into this pattern, which we think is the life of a believer day in and day out, which is a pattern of feasting and fasting, or fasting and feasting in this case. We'll go in the right order. Uh, as we are in the church calendar. but So we're going to be in a season of fasting, a season of wil like intentional wilderness wandering. And we do this so that then when we find ourselves in those spaces and places in our internal lives, in our spiritual lives, or maybe in our literal lives, like maybe there are seasons where we need things, we're without, that then we are practiced in turning to Jesus in those moments that we're practiced in, in finding faith and knowing that the Lord will deliver us. And so we intentionally place ourselves in those difficult moments. And so that's what we're doing. We're inviting you in to join us on this journey of the Lenten wilderness together as a community and as a people. And so we're going to focus our time on Sunday mornings around that theme and that topic. And then during the week, uh, what we would encourage you or invite you to do this, the first Sunday where we've been in Lent for just a few days, so you're not too late if you want to hop in. Uh, but we would encourage you to take serious what it might mean to abstain from something that you don't need to give up, uh, something that would uh, challenge you a little bit. Uh, common things, just quickly, are things like uh, meat and sweets is like the old school one, alcohol, uh, Netflix, um, there are a whole host of things that people give up for six weeks at a time. And what it is, is, and what we would encourage you to do is in the absence of those things, is that you would then like take on something else and to be reminded. For me, this season, Anna and I, for several years now, we've been doing the whole meats and sweets thing. And so we give up meat and uh, sweet treats for six weeks. And it's something that's like common. The church has done it for a long time. And so it's easy for us to do. We're like, yeah, like we'll do that. That's what a lot of people have done. But specifically this season, for me, I've noticed recently in the last year or so in the middle of COVID and the pandemic and fathering an almost five and three-year-old and being stressed out, how codependent I have become on food. Like I, I use food as a way to mask what I'm feeling in the afternoons. I, it's a way of me to like kind of escape. Instead of turning to something like prayer or quiet and solitude, I turn to Oreos. And this is not a joke. They go to bed and I sneak down and I get the stash from the top where they can't get it that I give to them one a day. And I'm like, three dipped in peanut butter? Why, yes, yes, I will. Um, and luckily, I have, you know, some self-control, but then I turn to Snickers after that. And then sometimes, you know, it's banana and peanut butter with chocolate chips after that. And so there's a theme with peanut butter, if you've noticed, and chocolate. But so the, it, it, this season, like I've approached this differently because I've realized like those things aren't bad. I don't need to give those things up. I'm a relatively healthy human being, but I've realized like how codependent I have become on those things 
when I'm stressed out, when I'm anxious, and it masks something. And I have to deal with that in a certain kind of way. And so that's what we're inviting you into, is these moments that kind of take stock. It's not that you, you have a problem with drinking or with eating. It's not that you're in a super unhealthy place and you need to like, oh, I have to change my whole life. It's no, like what are these small little areas that you could offer something to the Lord to say like, I'm going to be more dependent on you. The other thing we're going to invite you into doing is that for a small season or for this season together as a community, what we're inviting you into is to actually fast from food if you're physically able from Thursday night after dinner until Friday at 3 p.m. And what that time frame is, is the time frame that we believe from the Last Supper until Jesus was taken down off the cross. And so for six weeks, you're marking that with uh, quite literal pain and suffering the next day. It's very first world pain and suffering, but uh, it, by two the next day, you're, your stomach's grumbling, you're not used to eating, and you're, you're weak, you're tired, and, and you're acknowledging, and you're reminded in those moments with the, every turn of your belly that uh, there, there's something more. There was suffering that was far greater than this that allows you to be a part of the people of God. And so we invite you to fast from food for that time frame. And so we're doing that collectively as a community. And there are lots of other ways and resources to observe and participate in Lent. Uh, we understand that for some of you, like fasting isn't possible or Friday isn't possible. So be honest with yourself and before the Lord of like what you could do to, to step into that. If you want more resources on that, there are things posted online that we would invite you into uh, checking out. Um, if you go to our website or if you download our app, there's things there. Uh, you can see what's going on. And we've posted some stuff for you to kind of understand more and just like be able to read and study. And so this is the season we find ourselves in. And our passage that we're going to read in just a moment is actually uh, out of the wilderness season for the Israelites. We're going to be reading from Deuteronomy chapter 26. Deuteronomy actually means the second law. That's the, it's the Greek word for second law. And it's the second law because if you know your books of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, first time we see the law, and then we get to Deuteronomy, right? So uh, these books at the beginning of the Bible are called the Torah or the Torah. If you want to get real Hebrew with it, you can even get the guttural kind of scratchy sound if you want to. Uh, and these are the first few books of the Bible that marked the people of God in a different kind of way. So they get the, the law in Leviticus and they get it a second time in Deuteronomy. And in that, a lot of the laws that you'll read in Deuteronomy are the exact same that you read in Leviticus, which is supposed to mark the law they got at Mount Sinai. And we'll get into some of that history in just a second if this all seems unfamiliar to you. But this passage is a wilderness passage. They're still wandering. They're still looking for the promised land. And so it's fitting, and the passages that we will read will be fitting because the church has chosen these for thousands of years from the lectionary, and, and we're participating in that of what they've been doing. But what we see here is this, this group of people that are in the wilderness. They're longing for something else. And so for this season of Lent, we are a wilderness people. We're choosing to be that and to practice and to participate with them. And so our chapter 26 is actually at the conclusion of all of the laws dealing with things like civil life and social justice. Now, before I read this, I'd want to say something just briefly which is never a thing for me, and uh, on how to read these things, how to read something like Leviticus and Deuteronomy, okay? If you hear these things and you begin to compare them to laws and social life and civil life today, 
you will think these things seem really archaic. Newsflash. They are archaic. Okay? Like that is history. It is, it is ancient, ancient, ancient laws. And if you compare what is happening in Deuteronomy and Leviticus to what is happening in social and civil life today, you will rightfully say things like, that is messed up. And it would be weird for you not to say that. So I just want to give everybody a piece. Our passage, not that controversial. Read a few chapters before, and it starts talking about why it's okay to own slaves and why you can marry, like, how you can treat your wives. And you're going to go like, whoa, wait a minute. The Bible is weird. It is weird, okay? Let's all collectively say, it, it, like, it's okay. Like, we can breathe a sigh of relief to go. It is ancient, and it is archaic, and it is weird, and it is foreign, it should be foreign. It's not written in our language, okay? It's written in an ancient form of Hebrew that if you can speak and you go to Jerusalem today, you would not be able to communicate with people speaking Hebrew in Jerusalem today if you knew and understood, like, biblical Hebrew, all right? It is an ancient, foreign thing. And so we have to have to understand context. So the best way to read something like Deuteronomy or Leviticus is compare it toward to what we experience today in social and civil life but to compare it to what was happening at that point in time's social and civil life. So think of uh, something, well, let's see, the Code of Hammurabi is like one of the most ancient documents on like wisdom and like civil law that we have. You compare Deuteronomy and Leviticus to something like that, and what you see is a book full of grace. You see a book that is forward-thinking, you see a book that is acknowledging a God that isn't angry at you, but a God that is full of love. Deuteronomy is the book that mentions the word any other book in the Bible except for the love in Deuteronomy than any other book in the Bible other than the book of John. And so that is what you get. Like, that would be foreign and mind-blowing and culturally shifting in the ancient Near East compared to something like the Code of Hammurabi or the Middle Assyrian uh, laws that we have and can read. The way they're going to talk about God and the way it's going to be full of grace and full of kindness, full of opportunity to come back, that is foreign to ancient Near Eastern people. The gods thought very little. Study Greek and Roman mythology. Humanity was a pawn in the gods' game of entertainment, okay? Like, that is what you find. And yet, the people of God and the people of Israel are operating with a different kind of relationship with Yahweh. He's a personal God. He's near to them. He longs for them to be near to Him. And that's just not what's happening. So you take those things... And you compare, like, the, once you compare and contrast what's happening in society, what you can do is you can take a core principle of the law that you're reading about, and that's what we carry forward and talk about, is that core principle and this idea that we see. So, how do we do this? Our passage today, before we read it, it's going to talk about the first fruits. And if you would keep reading after verse 11 and get into verse 12 and on, it's going to talk about the third year tithe. And this is where we get the idea of tithing from, uh, not just the third year tithe, but the tithe in general that we see in uh, Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And so you might ask yourself, should you give exactly 10%? Well, if you're going to take the letter of the law in Leviticus and Deuteronomy quite serious, I have a newsflash for you. You have to give a whole lot more than 10%. In fact, you probably have to give somewhere close to 80% of what comes into your bank account. So I don't think any of us want to be biblical literist when it comes to how much money we give. I do not give 80%. 
Um, maybe one day, I, if the Lord is willing and things happen, I will. But uh, right now, that would not be possible. I would lose my home. I wouldn't be able to pay off my student loans. You get the picture. But what is it a core principle that we're going to see is this desire to give back to God that which we understand first came from Him. And to give it in such a way that one challenges us and two comes off the top. The first fruits are the first thing given before they do anything else. So it's not the amount of the principle that you carry forward. It's the attitude of giving to something that says, I acknowledge and recognize that God is good. That he has given me everything that I possess. And then the third tithe, this is every third year, the tithe that they give was specifically marked and given in such a way that it was supposed to go directly to taking care of the priest and the, or the Levites, the priest of the people, because they weren't supposed to work outside of the temple, and to the poor people in their community. The foreigner, the widow specifically is named, the sojourner, those that don't have homes and families. These are the people that the church is supposed to take care of. So then these are the, that's the principle we move forward with. Okay, so what are we supposed to do with our money? We're supposed to set it aside in such a way that we can take care of people that are being displaced from their countries. We can take care of people that don't have the same advantages that we have in a society and a culture around us. We can take care of people that have missed out on the opportunity to benefit from structures in the same way that we have because we are told to set that aside every so often to care for those people and to bring them into the, the joy and the provision that we have because we recognize that God has given it to us first. That's what we carry forward. Not an amount, not a name, not a number but the heart and the principle behind it. Because newsflash, again, that was a radically, radically counter-cultural way of thinking and processing. You did not care for the least among you in the ancient Near East. In fact, you did everything you could to get away from them. But Yahweh saw things differently. So, let's read Deuteronomy 26, 1 through 11. I say all that to say because I'm not going to talk a whole lot about the first fruits beyond that. But I wanted to give an example of how we interact with Deuteronomy and Leviticus and other Old Testament passages. Hear these words. When you have entered the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and you have taken possession of it and settled in it, take some of the first fruits of all that you produce from the soil of the land the Lord your God is giving you, and put them in a basket. Then go to place the Lord your God, go to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name, and say to the priest, in office at the time, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the land the Lord swore to our ancestors to give us. Take the basket from your hands and set it down in front of the altar of the Lord your God. Then you shall declare before the Lord your God, My father was an, a wandering Aramean, and he went down into Egypt with a few people and lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, subjecting us to harsh labor. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery and toil and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror and with signs and wonders. He brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, Lord, have given me. Place the basket before the Lord your God and bow down before him. 
Then you and the Levites and the foreigners residing among you shall rejoice in all the good things the Lord your God has given to you and your household. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so what this sermon is not then is not a sermon about how you guys need to plant gardens in the houses that you've been given and bring the first uh, fruits of that harvest to me and Kyle in a basket. Unless it is cilantro, green peppers, tomatoes, and uh, jalapenos and onions, and I can make some salsa from it. Then in that case, put it all in a basket in May and bring it to me and I'll take it. What we're talking about more is this idea of a group of people that are being invited into a land. Wanderers. People that have been out in the desert, never given a place to call their own, and they're saying, we're finally going to make it there. And what Moses is saying is, these are the rules you need to follow when you get in this land. So context for our passage and for Deuteronomy in general. There's kind of three big sections in the book of Deuteronomy. And this is painting with a big old brushstroke here, but go with it. There's Moses' opening speech at the very beginning... Then there is a giving of the laws and commands and how to follow them. And that's broken into three sections. The people of God or Israel's worship, their leaders and how they should govern themselves, and then civil and social life. Then you're going to end in, or start in chapter 27. So we're right on the cusp of this with Moses' farewell speech and then the narrative of Moses' death. And then in the story and the history of the people, what they get to do then is after Deuteronomy ends, they finally go into the promised land. Now, we're at this end. Moses is summing everything up. He's telling, this is what you need to do when you get into the land. You need to give the offerings to recognize what has been given to you. This probably happened in another command that was given earlier in Deuteronomy and what we also see in Leviticus where they are to celebrate what is called the Feast of Weeks. If you want to have a good time and celebrate a lot, eat a lot of good food, drink a lot of good wine, follow the Israelite calendar. They are constantly feasting. They are having themselves some fun. And the reason being is because they believe to the core of their bones that God longs for them to enjoy the life they have been given, that he is not holding out on them. And they celebrate and they feast in a way to declare in the name of what humanity has done which proclaims again and again that God is holding out on me, they say, no, 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 God is not holding out on us. He longs for us to celebrate and to recognize and name all of the good that he has given us. So the Feast of Weeks is one of these where they mark how good God has been to them. Now, what we read in Deuteronomy 26 was not listed in Deuteronomy 16 the first time you encounter the Feast of Weeks. And the reason being is I think, and other commentators that I read that are smarter than me uh, told me that it's okay to think this, but they are saying that like, what's probably happening here is this first fruits tithe or offering that he's talking about specifically, he very much so has in mind the very, very first one. Like once you've finally gotten into the land. And then, because it is something good and something that they need to participate in, they continue to celebrate it. They carry it forward because they're like, man, that was really good. And every time they do it, every time they bring the first fruits offering, what they're supposed to do is recall and be reminded of that very first harvest they had in the promised land after they had been wanderers in the desert. And so this is where we're at in Deuteronomy 26. They're there. And they're supposed to give this, the top of this like, first thing. And now, 
Some of this gets sacrificed in burnt offerings and things like that that we talk about in, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. You can see all the rules for sacrifices. But a lot of what these things are supposed to be is not just arbitrarily brought and then like left to rot. You don't put them at the foot of an idol thinking that they will magically eat it at night when you walk away. What God intends for his people to do is to take these things and then to eat with everyone around. And other cultures and other religions practice the same thing. The, the Jews are not exclusive on this. Um, but they, they are the ones that practice it, I think, probably the most and like more fully. So they take the things and they invite everyone to eat with all this and to celebrate and to feast and to retell and to recall. And if you get into the Psalms and you get into other places in the Old Testament, you would see this pattern of worship they had where they would bring the sacrifices, they would bring the offerings and they would place it before God and they would say like how good it is that God has given him this thing. And then what you don't read is that they would say, okay, now everybody come and enjoy what God has given me. They don't hold it for themselves. They don't say God has given me this and then you don't get any of it. I've got to make sure that this is mine because God gave it to me. What they say is, no, now come and enjoy. The Jews are an insanely hospitable people. In the laws of Deuteronomy and Leviticus, what you see is a heart for hospitality, a heart for welcoming those in need, a heart for inviting others into God's blessings in your life. And so this is what they're doing in Deuteronomy 26. So they're saying, hey, do this thing. And then when they do it, what they're supposed to do, that big, long section that they say, say this to the priest. I hope they have that written down. That would be, you know, if they had to memorize it. But then again, they memorized the whole Torah, so they probably didn't um, have it written down. But you're supposed to say, and what, what you're supposed to say is the history of the people of God. It's not some arbitrary, like, hey, this is my father. Like, he's not talking about his biological father. He's talking about the father of Israel, Jacob. And this man that was given over to Aramea, right? Aramean. I always want to say Arminian when I see that, and that's not, that's not what we're supposed to say there. It's Aramean. It's not Arminian. But this is the story of Jacob, Rachel and Leah. He goes into a foreign country, and, he, and he's a wanderer. They're recalling and they're retelling the, the nomadic nature of how the people of God were formed and shaped. They're put into this place where they're saying, we no longer are that, but let's remember what it was. Let's, let's recall and retell how good it was that God brought us through that. How good it was that God got us to this place to where we no longer have to be that. They recall and they retell and they recenter what it is that God's doing in their life so that they can remember that God is good and he longs to bless them and to keep them and for his face to shine upon them as they will say again and again, as the people of God. Now, as Moses does this, tells them to recall, he reminds them what it means that they were brought out of a slavery then in Egypt. You see that part. They go, they thrive in Egypt, and so the Egyptians decide that, hey, we can't let this people get too strong, so they put them into slavery, and then there's miraculous signs and wonders, and we know this from the book of Exodus. So the book of Exodus happens, Moses brings the people out of Egypt, and then immediately they're brought out, they're put at the foot of Mount Sinai, they're given the law, they're told to be this people, to be set apart, to be different, and we know the story, they fail miserably at it, and so they're uh, cursed to wander the desert for 40 years. They walk in circles, just kind of not allowed to ever settle or be, be at rest because of their faults. And their failures. And this is the 12 tribes of Israel doing this. They're growing. 
They're becoming more and more the people of God. And in the midst of all of this, they keep getting it wrong. They've been brought out of Egypt. They're placed at the foot of Mount Sinai, and they get it wrong. They fail. Their shortcomings over and over again. So as Moses has done this, he's looking at this group of people and he's saying, this is what you are called to. To go and to be thankful for what God has done for you. And he's looking at a generation that wasn't in Egypt. He's looking at a generation that has been the fruit of the wandering. He's looking at a generation that didn't cause the inability to get into the promised land to happen. They were just born into it. They didn't experience freedom. They didn't experience the smoke and the fire that led them through the desert to Mount Sinai. They didn't experience God coming down onto the mountain and giving them the laws. They experienced the frustration and the heartbreak of watching their parents and their grandparents not follow what God had given to them. They were the product of a group of people that had been given something beautiful and screwed it up. So think about what they might have been feeling in that moment. Think about what like, maybe they're looking at on the edge of the promised land. That, there's a good chance, I think, in that moment, they probably are like, why would we follow any of these rules? They didn't work for you. Why would they work for us now? And Moses is reminding them, no, 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 no. You need to do this. This is good because this is the Lord's history for you. Why would we recall and retell the heartache and the pain and the suffering that our parents caused? Because if you know Jacob, not the best person, right? You know the story of the 12 tribes of Israel. There's a lot of uh, muddy waters there. It's not exactly something you would look back and go, man, like, I'm really glad. Because these guys aren't that far removed. I mean, they're a little removed, but we're talking like great-grandparents. The ones that caused uh, Joseph to go into slavery to be put into Egypt, the ones that faked their brother's death. It's like their great uncle, their great great grandpa. Like why would they why would they embrace that? It's too ugly, it's too dark. But they're never shy about it. They're honest about the history. They're honest about the suffering. And this is the beautiful thing is Moses tells them all of this and then he continues in his final speech at the end of Deuteronomy and he says, "Hey, guess what? You're going to screw up too. You're going to be no different than the people that went before you." And yet God is good to call you to this thing. Your sins will look different because you're going to be in the promised land. God's going to finally give it to you because he has promised to give it to you. And God is faithful to do the thing that he promises to do. It's like one of the main themes of Deuteronomy, especially Deuteronomy 26, is that God will bring to completion the thing that he says he's going to do even if everyone involved screws up along the way. Because he's good, and he's inviting people into his goodness. He's inviting people into his mercy. So yeah, who knows what they were thinking? But I love that Moses calls them to think back on the good that they can see along that process. Because there had to be frustration. There had to be bitterness. This wasn't their sin, and yet they were called to deal with it. They had to address it. They had to change it. They had to do something different about it, even though they weren't complicit in the reasons for wandering in the wilderness. This is a new generation. And even though they know that they are going to mess up, 
God still offers them something beautiful and good, and he delivers on his promises. I think we can relate in a lot of ways. I think we can relate to the need to retell and to recenter and to recall God's goodness in our life. I think this is, a pra- this is what I believe part of Sunday morning is. Why I think this matters is that we gather together with a group of people and we proclaim together that God is good and he's faithful even though sometimes it doesn't feel like it. Because we can become so short-sighted, so captive to the moment that we find ourselves in. Personally, I relate to this. Let's take what I'm talking about here and like just examine my Saturday. I can wake up Saturday morning in a good mood. Everything's great. Rainbows and butterflies. The boys are funny. Anna's kind. She's doing everything I think she should do. I'm in a good mood. Everything's fine. We eat a great breakfast. We have a good lunch. 4.30 hits and everything comes off the rails. I go to bed on Saturday night and I'm like, life is miserable. No one loves me. I'm a terrible father. This isn't the way it was supposed to be. I hate everything. Whatever it is, right? I'm the only one in this room that feels that way. I know. I can tell. Uh, No one has ever else had this experience. This happens to me all the time. Forget Saturdays. It can be a Tuesday or a Thursday. It can be a Sunday. It can be with a group of friends or with a family member. So quickly on a dime, I can turn, and that becomes my reality, what happened in that moment. And I can become consumed by it. That person doesn't actually love me. A harsh conversation with a friend, and you can begin to question everything about that friend. You begin to question everything about your relationship with that person, and you begin to think, like, they don't even want me around. Why would I even be around? Why would I even participate in their life? They don't, they don't love me. They only care about themselves. We do it with significant others. We do it with our parents. When we have good relationships, there's these moments where we find ourselves, and that becomes our reality. I get so frustrated with toddlers, and then, like, my sister, who's going to school for counseling, she constantly reminds me, like, you do the same thing. You've just been socially, like, adjusted to deal with it. You don't throw yourself on the ground. But you, like, Jameson... You can tell him, like, hey, man, you can't do that. And immediately, if he's in a bad mood, he drops to the ground. I will never get to watch show again. And you're like, bro, I just meant, like, not in the next five minutes. But I do that all the time in my life. Last night, I was doing that. Like, I was, it's been a rough evening, afternoon. I was beating myself up. And I was like, I will never be a good dad ever again. I will never experience joy ever again. And I'm a vortex of just negative emotion that I suck my whole family into because I'm like, this is all terrible. You can pray for me, and I mean that seriously, and for Anna and my children. And if you're a four on the Enneagram, you know what I'm talking about right now, where you're just like, whatever you're feeling in the moment is the only thing that exists because we're just toddlers that never graduate. But we do this at a big picture, too. I think a lot of ways we're doing this right now with the church. There is a lot in the church that we are reckoning with and we need to. There is a lot of pain and suffering that the church has inflicted that we need to rightly name and address. There are a lot of ways that the majority of you in this room have been complicit or participated in systems that have benefited you over others in this room that have not. Okay, Racism has been infected in the church. 
We have abused power and position in the church regularly, and there, we have come to a reckoning. And I think it is really easy for us in our generation where we are caught in the moment to think, well, everything is terrible. Christianity, should it even exist? If you haven't asked that question, I don't know if you've thought about some of the things that we've wrestled through, but I think the answer is absolutely it should. We cannot allow ourselves to get caught up in just this one moment that we find ourselves in the long history of the church. It is important that we come and that we retell and we recall. But we do not hide. We are honest. Just like the people of Israel were honest about their failures and their shortcomings. They have whole books about how terrible their forefathers were. They didn't try to hide it or rewrite it or brush it under the rug. They named it. And they said, but despite that, despite how much we fail, God does not fail. God is good. God is kind. God longs to be near to us despite the fact that we constantly want to run as far away from him as we possibly can. And that is what we practice in the season of Lent. is this recognition that we are part of the reason we're in the wilderness. That we are part of the reasons that there's problems. We stop and we recognize that in a season like Lent and its beauty that it's inviting us into is all of the ways that maybe we are complicit in the thing that we're most angry about. All of the ways that we're just like the person that we can't stand. Oh, sure, we have different language and, and we color it a different way. We're just as selfish. We're just as hypocritical in our own ways when we're really honest. And together, as a group of people, what we're being invited into is to lay this down before the Lord and to say, change us. Do the thing that only you can do. Work your mercy and grace in me first and allow me to then be an extension of that mercy and that grace. There's lots of ways I see this in my own life. I stand here before you today because over 12 years ago, I felt this deep sense and burden to be the change that I wanted to see happen in the people of God. I was frustrated, burnt out, away from the church, wanted nothing to do with it. And I felt this overwhelming thing that inside of me that was like, if you don't want hypocrisy, if you don't want X, Y, Z, we can all name the things that we've been frustrated with at times, then you need to do something about it. And through God's sovereignty and his way of leading me, I ended up being the pastor of a church. And yet I can be honest before the Lord in ways that I have become hypocritical at times. The ways that I have held my beliefs and my things over someone's head as law when it should be a, a good practice to following Jesus. I can name all the ways that I too have come complacent with my comfortable life where I have used my privilege and the things that have been handed to me to just kind of be okay with the way the world is instead of caring about what breaks the Lord's heart. Instead of being honest about my own latent bias and racism that I consistently have to wrestle with and find and work on. Instead of saying, like, there are ways that I fail, it'd be a lot easier to just look at the people just like a little behind me and be like, yeah, but I'm way better than them. But Lent is a season where we come and we acknowledge all of the room that we still have to grow. All of the places that the Lord is saying, hey, you sin, you fall short. But guess what? I still love you. 
And I'm inviting you into this process of becoming more like Jesus. And that's the season we find ourselves. That's what it means to step into a wandering season, a wilderness season as a people of God. It's a season of confession. It's a season of making things right before yourself and before the Lord. It's a season of acknowledging the things in you that still need to die, the things that you still need to let go of, the things that you still hold as idols or as important to you. And we all have them. And by the grace of God, I can tell you, the Saturday night I had last night, those happen less often. They don't go as deep. I'm able to come out of it on a Sunday morning, and it wasn't too many months or years ago that that would have lasted a week or a weekend for me. But God's good, he's kind to, like, to meet me where I am and to walk me in that journey. And Lent is allowing God to meet us where we are and to be honest about it and to walk with him on that journey so that we can rightfully come to a space like Resurrection Sunday and Easter season and we can celebrate all the goodness that God has given to us in our lives. And so as the band comes up, we're going to come to the table And it's at the table that we mark and represent the Last Supper and the whole process of what we've talked about, that God's grace and his kindness to do the things that only he could do, to meet us where we are, to take on our burdens, our struggles, our hardships, to find us in a place, in a space where we are in desperate need, and he says, I will do the thing that you can't do for you. And then I will invite you into that, and I will bring you along. And in that moment, and I believe that when we take communion, what happens in the space is not only are we reminded, not only do we recall and retell the goodness and the mercy of God and his grace and his kindness to us, but we take the body and the bread and we ingest it, and it miraculously somehow transforms us to becoming more like Christ so that we can continue to be the body of Christ to a desperate, wanting, and watching world. That we can continue to be a people of peace. That we can continue to be a non-anxious presence in an age of anxiety and anger. That we can meet people where they are and we can extend to them the same grace and mercy that God has extended to us. And that we can actively do things to combat and to confront the things in the world around us that are antithetical to the gospel and to the kingdom of God. And so that we can pray together as a people that God's kingdom would come here in Birmingham as it is in heaven and then participate in that work that he has laid before us. So as the band plays, I'm going to invite you to come, take a piece of the bread and the cup, hold on to those elements, take those back to your seat and continue to contemplate, sing, pray as the Lord leads you. And then I'll come back up and I'll lead us in the receiving of those. Amen.